Right around the time I was about to be received into the Catholic Church, I was reflecting on the great Bible passage from Luke 24, The Road to Emmaus. I was thinking about it, especially in terms of my conversion to Catholicism, when a revelation hit me. I'll tell you what it was, coming up next. Helping you grow deeper on your spiritual journey. Welcome to The Inner Life with Patrick Conley. Welcome to The Inner Life. This is the show that's all about spiritual direction, where we hope to encourage and inspire you to living out your Catholic faith well today with the help of our expert spiritual directors. I am your host, Patrick Conley. So as I was pondering the road to Emmaus, how Jesus walked along along unrecognized with two disciples on the seven-mile journey from Jerusalem to Emmaus, and how, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, He explained to them everything in the scriptures about himself, and the hearts of those disciples burned within them. I suddenly had this revelation. This is the liturgy of the word at Mass. And then, of course, upon reaching Emmaus, and when he breaks bread with those disciples, it was then, in the breaking of the bread, that his true identity was made known to them. This, this was the liturgy of the Eucharist. It was as if God just revealed a profound truth from the scriptures directly to me about how, in my time in evangelical Protestantism, I had been strongly fortified in the divine revelation of the word. And now, on becoming Catholic, Jesus was going to make himself known to me even more profoundly in the Eucharist. I was on top of the world with this divine insight. Of course, come to find out later that this Catholic understanding of the road to Emmaus had been taught, shared, reflected upon, and preached upon for centuries. Okay, so maybe it wasn't so novel. It was to me, and quite frankly, finding out that my little revelation coincided with the ecclesial wisdom of the ages only stoked the fire of its authenticity and gave me more grounds for rejoicing and more anticipation for each and every Mass. Jesus does reveal himself in the scriptures and in the Eucharist. And the road to Emmaus is just one of the places in the Bible where we get to know our Eucharistic Lord. Today on The Inner Life, we're exploring the Eucharist and the scriptures. Making his debut as our very special guest spiritual director today is Bishop Andrew Cousins. Bishop Cousins is the Bishop of the Diocese of Crookston, Minnesota. And prior to that, he served as the Auxiliary Bishop for the Archdiocese of St. Paul in Minneapolis. And he is now leading the three-year National Eucharistic Revival and is Chairman of the Board of the National Eucharistic Congress. Your Excellency, it is a privilege to have you on the show today. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Patrick. It's a delight to be with you. I remember those days when you were just coming into the Catholic Church at the Cathedral yeah. of St. Paul there. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Yeah, indeed. Very good. And uh, I am, again, pleased to be speaking with you in perhaps more formal terms than we have in the past, but I am grateful that you've joined us and taken the time. But since this is, I, I have gotten to know you when you were in the Archdiocese of St. Paul in Minneapolis, but uh, why don't you introduce yourselves just to our listeners, please? Yes, yeah, so I was uh, for eight years an auxiliary bishop in St. Paul, Minneapolis, and then our Holy Father uh, sent me up to the beautiful northwestern part of Minnesota where uh, there's no snow yet, but we I am here in the Diocese of Crookston. Uh, so we are, Crookston is a small city a little bit north of Fargo, near uh, not too far from Canada, and uh, we have a beautiful diocese up here of about 30,000 Catholics. So, mm. And then also, as you mentioned, um, I've been chairing uh, the Committee on Evangelization and Catechesis at the USCCB, 
I just finished that chairmanship, but I'm still uh, the chair of the National Eucharistic Revival and the National Eucharistic Congress going forward. Yeah, well, fantastic, and grateful that you're with us today, especially to talk about a very appropriate and timely topic as the Eucharist in the Scriptures. Now, before we get into that, uh, well, specifically about the Congress, I know the U.S. bishops recently met in Baltimore. Do you have any updates about the Eucharistic Congress you'd like to share? We do. You know, we're going full steam ahead, so we really hope everybody goes to our website at eucharisticcongress.org and signs up. Um, we we mentioned at the bishops' meeting that, you know, one of the the concerns we've had is um, sometimes, for example, families might find it hard to be there for all five days, or some people might find the, the five days too much to take off work. So we have now begun to sell day passes, and we've been able to discount those day passes. And we've also, because of really generous sponsors like Relevant Radio is a generous sponsor of the National Eucharistic Congress. We've been able to now make it so that children under 12 are free. So even if you registered already and you you were planning on bringing children under 12, you'll get a refund for those children. And uh, so, you know, a couple that has five children under 12 and wants to come for the weekend can come for basically $250. And if they sleep in a campground or we're going to actually open up churches and schools as places for families and youth groups to stay if they want to. We're trying to make this uh, a come one, come all experience. And it's going to be really a, a gathering of the whole church. So I hope that people will go to the website and sign up uh, to come. Yeah, absolutely. And we are we are uh, privileged and proud to be uh, a generous sponsor of the Eucharistic Congress. And we are grateful that we'll be there broadcasting live there at the Congress. We've been encouraging people all along to uh, show up for Jesus. We're showing up for Jesus together, and we have travel packages put together, too, at relevantradio.com slash encounter. Well, Bishop, it is so good to be with you again and to be talking about this important topic, again, the Eucharist and the Scriptures, again, timely in the midst of the revival and looking ahead to the Congress coming up. Maybe we should go all the way back to the Old Testament, Bishop, because we start, certainly start to see some some precursors, some looking forward to our Eucharistic Lord, even in the Old Testament. For instance, say the manna in the desert. What what would you say about the manna in the desert, and what does it help us to understand about the Eucharist? Well, it's beautiful because the Book of Wisdom actually calls that the bread from heaven, right? Mm. The manna in the desert. And there was a real sense um, of God's incredible provision through this miraculous bread. And uh, so the prophets, of course, spoke about this as a, as a sign of God's power and provision. And the fathers of the church immediately made the connection. And Jesus himself makes the connection to the Eucharist, right? Yeah. So in John chapter 6, when Jesus is speaking about the Eucharist, you know, a lot of people don't know. The context for that passage is it's right by Passover, John tells us. And there was amongst the Jewish people at the time of Jesus this sense that when the Messiah came, the manna would return, that the manna would be the sign that the Messiah had come. And so when Jesus multiplies the the bread to feed 5,000, they think, well, this is the manna. And then Mm. he escapes and goes up the mountain to pray, and then he walks across the water of the Sea of Galilee, and the people meet him the next day, and they say, are you the Messiah? And he says, you're saying that because I gave you bread to eat to fill your stomachs, but let me tell you about the true manna. And he points out that the manna in the Old Testament was a foreshadowing of the Eucharist, which becomes, of course, our daily bread. And it becomes this life force that the life of Jesus that comes to us that allows us to survive in the desert as we're on the way to the promised land. So uh, just as the, the, um, in the Old Testament they ate manna, 
we have the gift of the Eucharist as we are now living in the desert and we're on our way to the promised land of heaven. The Eucharist is what sustains us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's uh, just uh, since you brought up the Bread of Life discourse from John chapter 6, Bishop, I've got to tell you that uh, I know that our mutual friend, Father Joseph Johnson, who's a regular spiritual director here on the Inner Life for us as well, I was on pilgrimage with him to the Holy Land, and we read through the entirety of the Bread of Life discourse, sitting right there in Capernaum. And I'll tell you, that's mm-hmm. that's quite a uh, that's a, a wonderful experience to have had, and it really hits me there too. I can recall that too when we're coming into the the liturgy of the Eucharist uh, there in each and every Mass. So, are there any specific areas of the text, or as we dig into the Bread of Life discourse, anything that strikes mm-hmm. you, Bishop? Anything that uh, that we should notice as we're encountering the scripture? Yeah, that passage is so central. Um, you know, St. John's Gospel is the most sacramental of the Gospels. He really, you find all the sacraments there in a certain way, you know. Mm. And um, especially in John chapter 6, this bread of life discourse is so strong. And what you realize is, you know, Jesus foreshadows the Eucharist by the multiplication of the bread. And then they begin to ask him, and he begins to speak about the manna. And he even begins it by saying, "The one who, no one who comes to me will ever hunger. No one who believes in me will ever thirst. And you, you start to think for a minute, like, who can say that? Right. <laughs> like, <laughs> who can say that? Like, only God can say that. It's one of those moments where Jesus is revealing who he is, right? Right. And then he begins to speak about how he will give them his flesh to eat. And he uses that, St. John uses that word sarks, you know, mm-hmm. um, which is a very strong word for meaning flesh. And, um, and the Jews begin to question this. But as you notice throughout the passage, the more that he, they question him, the stronger he gets. So first they question him, how can he give us his flesh to eat? And then he says, not only will I give you my flesh to eat, I'll give you my blood to drink. Mm. And now for a Jew, that's yeah. unheard of, right? Jews don't right. drink any animal's blood because the blood is the life force that belongs to God. And so this is scandalous to them. And then they continue to question more, and he says, and he even changes the words, right? If you read the Greek text, we know that first he uses the word phagon, which is the normal Greek word for eating. But then as they question him, he begins to use the word trogain, which is more of a graphic word that would mean like gnawing or chewing, like the word you would use to describe one animal eating another. And he uses mm-hmm. that word to describe. And so it's an amazing thing. Like the more they doubt, the stronger his declaration about the reality of what we're talking about begins to be clear. And it becomes so clear that at the end of the passage, many of the disciples say they're not going to follow him anymore. And this is the stunning part, right? Jesus doesn't say to them, oh, you misunderstood me. I was only speaking symbolically. What he does say is he turns to his closest disciples, the 12 apostles, and he says, will you also leave me? And then you have here Peter's confession of faith. You know, in in Matthew's gospel, we have that famous passage where Jesus says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. In John's gospel, we have this confession where, Jesus, where Peter says, to whom else would we go? You have the words of everlasting life. Yeah. And I love that passage because Peter doesn't say, oh, we understand, we get it. It's clear, perfectly clear to us. He says, no, this is also, we don't understand what you're saying. Right. And they can't understand before the gift of the Eucharist at the Last Supper. But he, but he says, even though we don't understand, we know you, Lord. And we know you speak truly. And St. Thomas Aquinas will say when speaking about the Eucharist, he says, truth himself speaks truly or there's nothing true. And mm-hmm. so if Jesus says, this is my body, it's true, right? Wow. 
Yeah. We're speaking today with Bishop Andrew Cousins of Crookston, Minnesota, Bishop of Crookston, Minnesota, and uh, leader of the National Eucharistic Revival and the National Eucharistic Congress as well about the Eucharist and the Scriptures. What are some of your favorite scriptural passages about the Eucharist? Maybe there was a time in your life when you had difficulty believing that Jesus was or is truly present in the Eucharist. Give us a call and join the conversation. Our number here at The Inner Life is 888-914-9149. Again, 888-914-9149. That's our toll-free line sponsor sponsored by the Catholic Order of Foresters. You can send us an email if you prefer, innerlife at relevantradio.com. Well, uh, Bishop Cousins, as we're, as we're looking at this, as we're talking about it, I think one of the things that we oftentimes notice, if we're familiar with all four of the Gospels, is that there's no particular institution narrative in the Gospel of John as there are in the synoptics. But uh, I think many might argue that, well, it's actually the teaching on the Eucharist is even stronger in the Gospel of John because of the Bread of Life discourse. Would you agree with that? I would agree with that. And so it's very clear that St. John knew uh, of the existence of the Eucharist because of the Bread of Life discourse. Um, And some people actually say he's making certain points in his own Last Supper discourse that are very Eucharistic, and he, he, he leaves out intentionally the institution of the Eucharist, mm-hmm. as well as the celebration of Passover, right? Because he's, yeah. he's emphasizing other things. So the washing of the feet, which is really this symbol of his own life being poured out to wash away our sins, or the image of the vine and the branches, which is a very Eucharistic image, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I'm the vine, you're the branches, the one who remains in me bears fruit. Well, that, how do you remain in him? You remain in him by receiving his life, and that's what we receive in the Eucharist. I often yeah. use that passage to describe what happens if we miss Mass on Sunday for no good reason. It's like we're the branch and we're disconnected from the vine now, and so the life of God can't come to us, right? We need to be repaired. Yeah, yeah, indeed. Well, and I'm, as I'm thinking about it, as I'm contemplating it in the, in the Bread of Life discourse and the power, the potency of it as well, it's just it seems to me that there is... There is. It's hard to imagine that we get to the place where, of course, um, it's oft been quoted. You know, this this understanding based on polls and and such that uh, that so many Catholics don't hold to the real presence of Jesus in the Eucharist. And I understand that being a, a huge difficulty, a huge problem, based on truth himself saying that he is present in in there. But it even goes beyond that, doesn't it? I mean, the whole focus of the revival of the Congress of everything is, yes, to affirm that that's what we teach, that's what we believe as Catholics, but it's also to get us to live Eucharistically, yeah? What what would you say that's entailed with that? What does it mean to live Eucharistically? Yeah, the goal is that we would come into a living relationship with Jesus Christ in the Eucharist, and then from our own experience and encounter with Jesus in the Eucharist, we would learn the purpose of our life, which is what the Eucharist is meant to teach us. This is when we speak about it as the source and the summit of our life. The Eucharist is meant to teach us that the purpose of our life is to make a gift of our life, that I live actually and exist to be able to worship God, to give myself to God. And of course, that happens very practically in my daily life, in my care for those around me who God has put in my life, in my care for the poor, in my uh, living and witnessing to my faith. Those are all ways I, I make a gift of myself. But all that is actually fulfilled when I bring it back to the Eucharist and I place it on the altar and I offer it with Jesus's sacrifice to the Father. And so we speak about the Eucharist as the source, right? It's the place where I receive life, 
Yeah. Jesus comes to live in me, but it becomes the summit when I make an offering of my life united to Jesus's offering at the mass. And mm. in this way, you know, uh, the importance of worship, which is, you know, fulfilled in the first commandment and in the third commandment, you know, this, uh, you shall worship no one but God alone. And when you think about the history of worship, in fact, there's really only one true act of worship in the history of the world, and that was Jesus's offering of himself to the Father. Hmm. He offered his life in the perfect act of worship. It was the perfect internal worship, his heart, and external worship, his body. Everything's given, and it's given on our behalf and for our salvation and to order, to restore us to, to communion with God. But hmm. our worship, therefore, is only perfect and can only be perfect when it's united to him. And this is what Jesus is talking about in John chapter 4, when he says, the woman at the well says, you know, you Jews say we're supposed to worship at the temple. We Samaritans worship here. And Jesus says, the hour is coming and is already here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And indeed, the Father seeks such people to worship him. Well, he's talking about the hour of his passion, the hour of his gift. And True worship is when we're able to participate in that. And that's what it means to live Eucharistically. It means to make my whole life an act of worship for him, which is the real interior and exterior gift of myself. Right, right. St. Paul will pick up that, that same theme in Romans chapter 12, right, when he invites us to make of our bodies a living sacrifice unto God, and which is our Correct. spiritual, our reasonable act of worship. Oh, it's Most a great invitation. don't know that... That yeah, line ahead. is in the first. That line is in the first Eucharistic prayer, actually, when it speaks about the offering of the Eucharist. It speaks about that reasonable worship, you know. Yeah, yeah, wonderful. Bishop Andrew Cousins is our spiritual director today here on the Inner Life. We're talking about the Eucharist and the Scriptures. If you have some favorite scriptural passages that have really led you into a deeper understanding of our Lord present to us in the Holy Eucharist, or maybe there's a time, maybe that time is right now when you're having problems understanding or believing that Jesus is truly present to us in the Holy Eucharist, give us a call, ask your questions, give us your favorite scriptural passages at 888-914-9149. Again, 888-914-9149. We're going to take our first break, but we'll be back with more with Bishop Andrew Cousins right after this. Our sponsor, the University of Dallas, invites you to check out The Quest, a five-episode video series on discovering our purpose and living it with courage. Start watching The Quest for free at relevantradio.com slash quest. Welcome back to The Inner Life on Relevant Radio, on RelevantRadio.com and on the Relevant Radio app. My name is Patrick Conley. And just a reminder, as we're speaking all about the Eucharist and the Eucharist and the Scriptures today, that indeed we will all be there. Relevant Radio, our entire crew will be there broadcasting live from the National Eucharistic Congress next summer, July 17th to 21st in Indianapolis. Check out our travel packages for the Congress at RelevantRadio.com slash encounter. That's RelevantRadio.com slash encounter. And where you can also catch Father Rocky's Eucharistic videos and check those out as well. We're speaking today with our special spiritual director, Bishop Andrew Cousins, who is leading us through kind of some reflections on how the scriptures enhance and understand, inform our understanding of Jesus present to us in the Eucharist. One of the things, Bishop, that has always uh, struck me in terms of 
even even before I was Catholic, give us this day our daily bread. As Jesus is teaching his disciples to pray, give us this day our daily bread. And that is something that had Eucharistic overtones certainly to it. And again, even in my life as a Protestant prior to being Catholic. So there's something profound there, yeah? Yes. Uh, you know, even the, the, the translation of that word, which um, St. Saint, Saint Jerome translated super substantial, right? Mm, um, nice. In, instead, of, uh, instead of daily, you know, um, is trying to figure out exactly what the Greek word there means. Um, but it does... It certainly is um, a, con- a connection to the Eucharist. Um, it's certain, you know, at one level, it's it's the connection of our reliance on divine providence, right? Sure. Yeah. Um, like we trust in our heavenly Father to actually give us what we need every day. But that's not just natural things; that's also supernatural things. And one of the ways that the Lord remains with us and that the Lord gives us what we need is through the Eucharist. And and here you see the the beauty of this fact that it's available every day right? This food is available to us every day. And uh, it was certainly one of the important practices of most of the saints was to, as much as possible, attend the Eucharist every day. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, now not every Catholic can do that. And we understand that. I often say, well, just go once more a week, you know? <laughs> um, sure. Right. But, uh, but the, this idea that the Lord is going to sustain us both naturally and supernaturally, the Eucharist is a huge part of that because it actually gives us this daily um, substance that we need. John Paul II spoke about it this way. He said, the Eucharist is the secret of my day. Hmm. It gives meaning and purpose to all my activities in the service of the church and the world. Hmm. And yeah. it's like he, he received from it something, but he also learned from it something, right? It gave him strength. It gave purpose, understanding of how he's supposed to live. Yeah. Yeah, and since you brought up St. John Paul II, I remember just even the opening lines of uh, uh, of his, I don't remember if it was an encyclical, but the Eucharistic, uh, the Church of the Eucharist, and, and he says that the Church draws mm-hmm. her life from the Eucharist. And, and that's something that we that's true of certainly the Church as a whole, but as each individual member, too, draws life only from the Eucharist, which is profound to me as well. Yeah, I often say to people when I'm preaching, you know, the only place in this world you can receive divine life, right? Now, of course, grace can be poured into our hearts in many ways, right? Mm-hmm. But the only way we, the, the way we were meant to receive divine life is from the Eucharist, is from this altar. And I said, you can't find it anywhere out there when I'm in the church, right? You can't find the life of God. It's not going to come to you any other way concretely, substantially, except through the sacraments. And most especially through the Eucharist, which is the sacrament of sacraments. And that's because the other sacraments give God's grace. They give God's power, God's mercy. But the Eucharist gives us Christ himself. And that's why it's the most important of all the sacraments. Yeah, absolutely. All of those sacraments being ordered to it. Well, if indeed we're reliant on God's providence uh, for this life of God providing us daily the life that we need. And one of the things that I know is often reflected upon is um, daily, and like you said, you know, perhaps we can't make it to mass every day, but uh, but just <laughs> I like what you said. Just go once more a week. Sure, yeah, pick it up a little bit, right? But with mm-hmm. that, um, there's this understanding that we are we are given that on a daily basis, and it's it's like uh, we can't store it up, right? We can't go to mass at Christmas and store it up until Easter. <laughs> <laughs> That's for sure, yeah. and. Uh, yeah, it's meant to accompany our whole life. And, you know, there's that line at the, you mentioned the Road to Emmaus in our opening, when 
the disciples get to Emmaus, and it seems as if the Lord is going to go on. Right. But they say, stay with us, remain with us. And uh, St. John Paul II also wrote a letter with that title, Mane Nobiscum Domine, remain with us, Lord. And he says that's the cry of the heart always, um, because we don't want the Lord to leave us. And how does the Lord remain with us? Well, he goes in and he takes bread, brushes it, breaks it, and gives it to them. It's in the Eucharist that he remains with us. And here's how he wants to accompany us throughout our whole life is through his presence in the Eucharist. So we can always go and pray before the tabernacle or in adoration. And we can always come to receive him. And he will accompany us throughout our whole life, just like he did with the manna in the desert. Mm -hmm. Well, you mentioned receiving, and I think that's one of the things we should talk about, too. Uh, St. Paul had some words to the Corinthians about the proper way of receiving the Eucharist in chapter 11. Uh, so maybe let's talk a little bit about that. What's the proper way? What are the warnings that he gives, and what are the proper ways of receiving the Eucharist? Yeah, and you know, St. Paul's writing in 1 Corinthians 11 is one of the most important writings about the Eucharist because it's probably the earliest, right? Mm -hmm. So yeah, good he point. is... He's, says to the Corinthians there, you know, for I receive from the Lord what I handed on to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night he was handed over took bread and after he'd given thanks, and he goes through the whole institution narrative. But so St. Paul, you know, is probably visiting the Corinthians sometime in the in the 40s, maybe, maybe early 50s, right? So this is like 15 or 20 years after Jesus' resurrection and ascension. And, um, and, and then he writes, he's writing to them in the 50s probably, but he had visited them before, right? And so and he refers to what he did when he was with them. He says, remember when I was with you, I taught you how to celebrate the Eucharist. And, um, and, I, and I, you know, taught you how this is supposed to happen within the community. Yeah. And then he, based on that, he critiques the Corinthians for a struggle that they were having. And the struggle is a division in the community. And it's a division between the rich and the poor. And so he, he mentions the fact that they're having meals, at likely after the Eucharist. We know the early churches did this after the celebration of the Eucharist. They had a, a like an agape meal where they shared food together, um, as we sometimes do with coffee and donuts, right? It's a, it's a normal practice. And <laughs> right. uh, so he, uh, but he says, you know, what's clear is that the rich people are not sharing their food with the poor people. And so there's a division in the community. And he says, you know, some go hungry and others get drunk. So he's very strong about this. And then he reminds them, remember what I said to you, what the Eucharist means, and he describes the institution of the Eucharist. And then he says some very important words. He says, a person should examine himself and so eat the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment upon himself. Now, what does he mean by that? Yeah. Well, first off, the phrase to eat and drink judgment upon himself is a very strong phrase. And um, sometimes it's even translated, you know, that, that you are guilty of the blood of the Lord. Hmm. And what that means is, in some ways, I'm, I'm causing his death by receiving Holy Communion in, in unworthily, right? So this is a very strong statement about this. And what he's saying is, um, well, he says it actually in the line before, right? You will have to answer for the body and blood of the Lord. Hmm. And um, that's, that's this sense of, you know, you have confirmed the death of the Lord by your own unworthy participation. And so what he's saying is that receiving communion, it must be done worthily. And if it's done worthily, then it produces great fruit enough. If it's done unworthy, unworthily, 
then it's actually damaging for us and it, it contributes to our further separation from the Lord. Mm-hmm. Um, and in this way, he even says, you know, this, this is why some of you are ill and others have died. <laughs> yeah. Because it has, it, it's, um, you're eating and drinking condemnation on yourself is what he's saying. And so it, it becomes for all of us an, a warning, but also an invitation to receiving communion worthily. And the way we do that, of course, is by if we're conscious of any grave sin, if we've missed Mass on Sunday or something like that, then we go to confession. And through the sacrament of confession, we are restored to communion, and now we can come to communion, and our sign can can also fit our life, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so it's actually a really important part of the, the understanding of communion, especially because we, we tend to have the practice today that sort of everybody who comes to church goes to communion. And uh, uh, we want everyone to go to communion. Believe me, we do, because communion is so important. But we want everyone to go to communion worthily. And so we have to make sure that we're helping people understand what that means, or else um, it can be actually harmful for, uh, for us. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a good, and good advisory to, I mean, it's a good thing to take into ourselves as we're looking at receiving communion on a weekly, at least, if not daily basis, and uh, really taking a look at, are we discerning the body well? Are we living according to, yeah, what it means to receive the Eucharist rightly and in a state of grace? Our Spiritual yeah. director today is Bishop Andrew Cousins. We're talking about the Eucharist and the Scriptures. If you have a favorite passage of the Scriptures that helped you to better understand Jesus present in the Eucharist, or if you have questions about how Jesus is present in the Eucharist, give us a call, 888 again, 888 or send us an email, at relevantradio.com. Bishop, I, I think that there's some great things that are in there in terms of receiving um, receiving the Eucharist well. Let's let's just go into some of the institution narratives. Specifically, I'm I'm thinking. Well, I have Luke in front of me here. So he took mm-hmm. bread, he gave thanks, he broke it, he gave it to them, saying, "This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me." Some of the words. I mean, it seems like those words are so rich in so many ways. And one of the things that continues to strike me, even when I hear the celebrant at mass saying these words. And, and that Jesus is working through him in persona Christi Capitis, that he is giving himself for us. That's the thing, for you. It's given for you. What does that mean? How, how do we engage with that and bring that to a deeper level of understanding in our lives? I, I, there's two comments I would have about that. One is that those words of St. Luke there, so Luke and Paul have very similar traditions with regard to the Eucharist and, uh, you know, Mark and Matthew's are, are quite similar, but uh, especially in Luke's gospel, whenever the Eucharist is mentioned, those four words are mentioned. He took mm. bread, said the blessing, broke it, and gave it to them. So that happens in the multiplication of the loaves. That happens at the Last Supper. It happens at Emmaus, right? And okay, so yep. clearly for St. Luke, who's writing as a member of the early Christian community, this is the earliest Eucharistic prayer, right? This taking bread, saying the blessing, broke it, and gave it to him. And it's still, of course, in our Eucharistic prayer today. Right? right, And it's the same thing that St. Paul says when he teaches the Corinthians about the Eucharist. He uses those same four verbs. And so um, those, those four verbs actually become a way for us to understand what's supposed to happen in us, right? Mm-hmm. Which is, I allow my life to be taken by the Lord, and then I allow my own life to be broken and given for him. Blessed, broken, mm-hmm. and given. And this is actually part of what happens in the disciple it's part of what he learns from the eucharist is that my life belongs to the lord 
and my life is blessed by him and I'm filled with his grace, but I, my life is also broken in the sense of I experience the cross, I experience my own weakness, and then my life is meant to be given for him. And so as I live a Eucharistic life, those kind of four passages become part of what it means to live a, a Eucharistic life. Mm -hmm. But th the other aspect that's very clear is for you. <laughs> right, 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 exactly. This is my, given for you. Um, and it's meant to be very personal, right? It's not for all. Um, it is for all. But it's not, you know, um, it's not just for a group. It's for individuals, right, within the group. And so it's like even when St. Paul, when he, when he speaks about Jesus' death, he says, Christ who, who died for me and gave himself for me, right? And so each of us are meant to experience that at the Eucharist that he's given for me. And that tells me about something about who I am. It tells me that I'm God's beloved because he, he gives himself for me. And, of course, the Eucharist is a foreshadowing of the wedding feast, right? He's the bridegroom giving himself for his bride. And I'm loved in such a way that he's willing to give everything for me. It tells me about my worth and my dignity. Um, even, you know, Cardinal Ratzinger, when he was commenting on this passage in a homily before he was Pope, he said, he said, we should remember it cost Jesus everything to give us the Eucharist. Mm -hmm. And we should remember that whenever we hold it, right? Or whenever we receive it, that it cost Jesus everything to give us this gift. And this is how much he loves us. And so it's meant to speak to us of a very intimate relationship of love. And it reveals, therefore, my identity. Who am I? I'm the one that, that God found worth giving himself for. Yeah. Um, of course, the other aspect of the identity is very clear in the writings of St. Paul, which is, uh, I also become his body, right? And so it's this teaching that's in the scriptures and in the fathers of the church that we become what we receive. Right. And so uh, it's revealed that I am one with Jesus now after receiving Holy Communion, and therefore I'm meant to be his body. And so... Uh, how does Jesus live in the world? How does Jesus offer his sacrifice in the world today? How does Jesus um, spread the truth and bring healing, all those things? Well, through his body, the church, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which is meant to happen concretely in each of us as members. So the Eucharist, in a very real way, reveals our identity, who we are, and then it reveals how we're supposed to live based on that. And one of the great insights I think that that also offers, to me at least, and we've had shows on suffering uh, in the past, and I'm sure we will do it again because it's something, something we all face. But it makes a lot of sense to me that, of course, Jesus' physical body suffered on the cross. But we should not then be surprised when his mystical body suffers as well, when it's given, you know, when his body continues to be as St. Paul says, right? I make up for what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. It seems to me that this is this is another invitation into uh, a meaningful suffering, a suffering that actually now carries with it a redemptive quality that on its own would be left as merely meaningless. Absolutely. And this is one of the great values of the Eucharist is that it has the power to give meaning to our sufferings. Hmm. And it's one of the great struggles of the modern world because human life is filled with suffering it just is because we're limited right. and we're fallen and there's no escaping that um we have our limits and we have fallen nature and so there's going to be suffering in this world but the suffering doesn't have to be empty it can actually be powerful it can actually be 
part of the gift that I'm able to give to God and to give to others. And it's part of, um, as St. John Paul II will say, it's part of drawing down God's grace upon the world. In fact, he says it's the mode par excellence to draw down God's grace upon the world. And that's what St. Paul is saying Hmm. when he writes that from prison. And he says, um, I make up in my own sufferings what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. Well, what is lacking? The sufferings of his mystical body have not yet been united to him. Hmm. And that's what we have the opportunity to do in the Eucharist. I often speak about that phrase. My mother used to say it when I was a kid, and I didn't really like it when she would say it. She would say, offer it up. <laughs> yeah, right. Yep. And you know, I didn't like it because it kind of ended the conversation. You know, I couldn't complain anymore. <laughs> but what did she mean? Well, mm. she meant think of someone else who is suffering more than you right now. Imagine that person in your mind. And then take this suffering that you're experiencing in your imagination and connect it to the person who is suffering through Jesus. Now, of course, that would be ridiculous if it wasn't for the Eucharist. How could my, you know, suffering being picked on when I'm in junior high possibly affect someone else who's going through greater suffering, maybe people who are in prison or people who are thinking of suicide or people who are living in war-torn areas? What difference could it possibly make Well, if that suffering can be brought to the altar and offered there, united to Jesus' suffering, and if it becomes part of his great offering to the Father, well, then my little suffering is transformed into something powerful that can actually apply to people in war-torn areas or people who might be considering suicide or someone in prison. And it can make a difference for them through being united to Jesus' one true offering. And that's what St. Paul's doing, right? When he's saying, I found my suffering isn't meaningless. It has meaning here, and I'm, I'm uniting it to Jesus' is for his church. And it's making it different for his church. And how important that is for, for people who have cancer, or for people who are going through difficult marriages, or people who are going through difficult moments in their life of darkness, of tragedy, of mental illness, to know that these sufferings are not worthless they can be placed on the altar at the offertory and they become part of Jesus's offering to the father. And then they have infinite value for the salvation of the world. What an invitation. It's uh, it's inspiring. It's motivating. Uh, it doesn't take away the pain of the suffering, but it actually gives it meaning. And it gets to that place where we are again, working with our head, with Christ Jesus himself in the redemption of the world, cooperating with him in that. Our spiritual director today, Bishop Andrew Cousins, we're talking about the Eucharist in the Scripture and all the things that the Scripture reveals to us about our Eucharistic Lord Jesus. If you have a favorite Scripture passage about the Eucharist, if you have some questions about Jesus being presenting himself or the writings of the epistles of Paul, for example, on the Eucharistic Lord, and you have some comments on that, give us a call at 888-914-9149. Again, 888-914-9149. Or send us an email, innerlife@relevantradio.com. We've got more to come with Bishop Cousins right after this short break when we continue our conversation on the Eucharist and the Scriptures. We'll be right back. Our sponsor, the University of Dallas, invites you to check out The Quest, 
a five-episode video series on discovering our purpose and living it with courage. Start watching The Quest for free at RelevantRadio.com slash quest. Welcome back to The Inner Life here on Relevant Radio. My name is Patrick Conley. My thanks to Nick Sentovich, our producer, and Thomas Engesser, who's on the phones for us today. Thanks for joining us on this special day when we are talking about the Eucharist and the Scriptures with our spiritual director, His Excellency Bishop Andrew Cousins of the Diocese of Crookston, Minnesota, and also the head of the National Eucharistic Revival and the National Eucharistic Congress. And Bishop, we were just talking about suffering as well. Do you have a story you'd like to share about suffering? Yeah, I um, through my work uh, as a young younger priest, I got to know the missionaries of charity, Mother Teresa's sisters, mm. and uh, through them, I, I met a man who was a paraplegic who lived in Belgium, in Ghent, Belgium. I was living in the Rome at the time, and the sisters would have me up to Ghent on on occasion to give a little weekend retreat for them, or or even an eight day retreat. And uh, there was a man named Fernand who lived in Ghent, and he was the reason the missionaries of charity were in Ghent. Mother Teresa had met him, and she wanted her sisters to live close to this man because she was so grateful for his holiness. But uh, Fernand was a paraplegic. He he wanted to be a priest um, and had planned to enter seminary, but just about a month before he entered seminary, he came down with a disease that paralyzed him completely. He was able to move his head, and he could speak just fine, and he could squeeze his right thumb on his in his arms crossed you know he could squeeze his thumb just enough to press a button that would open the front door of his his one-room apartment okay and um so i got to visit him a few times and whenever i would go there with the sisters we would always um, celebrate mass in his room and it was interesting because um the sisters would say that fernand was the most joyful person they'd ever met um even though he had been in that bed for 50 years when i met him and they said you know if they're having a bad day they would just go visit fernand and he would always cheer them up it was filled with joy and uh, actually, in, in Belgium, they have young people who have to do mandatory service between the ages of 18 and 20. And some of those young people would be sent to Fernand to care for him, for his physical needs. And uh, oftentimes, they would be so interested in the faith after spending some time with Fernand, they'd be sent to the sisters for instructions to become Catholic. You know, mm. wow. um, But there was a story the sisters told me about when Mother Teresa first met him. And uh, the co-worker who was with her was looking around Fernand's one-room apartment. He was lying there on the bed, and they were talking, and she said, Fernand, you don't have a crucifix on your wall. Why don't you have a crucifix? And uh, Mother Teresa was a little frustrated, and she said, don't you see? He's the crucifix. He's yeah. the one on the cross. Huh. And sure enough, Fernand does have a crucifix. He keeps it on his chest between his folded arms, so he embraces it always because he can't move his arms, right? He's holding that crucifix against his chest. Yeah. And for him, it's a reminder of the meaning of his suffering. And the fact that he's offering his suffering for the salvation of the world, right? And that he is on the cross with Jesus. And what would happen is when we would go to celebrate Mass, the sisters would take that crucifix off Fernand's chest and they would put it on the table where we celebrated Mass. And of course, for me, it was a great symbol of what happens at Mass, which is all Fernand's sufferings, all those lonely hours in the middle of the night where he can't move and he's suffering and he's, he's praying and he's trying to offer that. All that's poured into the cross, and then that cross is placed on the altar, and it's all that suffering is united to Jesus' suffering on the cross. And now it's brought up to the Father as this great hymn of praise and also a great petition for the world um, from which Fernand gave his life. 
And he, he said to me when I was with him, he said, I know I've done more good on this bed than I would have as a priest. I know I've been more good for God. Whew. And that was the, the power he believed in his own suffering. Mm. Wow. That's, uh, uh, what a fantastic story. What, a, what an amazing uh, gift of oneself. And in that, I mean, being a paralytic, I mean, that's, that's got to be obviously a, a huge form of suffering. But the invitation is still there, right? I mean, that this is translatable right. to any of the sufferings that we undergo. Yeah, and this is the goal of all of us is how can I see my little sufferings that I have to undergo in any given day for my family or for my friends or the loneliness that I experience? Um, how can I see those as something that can be given and something that can be offered. I remember a, a priest friend of mine who, uh, like me now, he, he, he lived and worked away from his family, right? Mm -hmm. So he would go home on Thanksgiving and things like that to visit his family, and he would get back on the plane to go to where he was working as a priest, and he would feel that heaviness in his heart for having to leave his family. And then he would feel upset that he was upset. He'd think, well, I know, I know I'm supposed to do this. Like, this is how God wants me to live. He's called me to be a priest, and he's called me to serve in this other place, and so I should be happy about it. And one day he said he was praying with that frustration, with the sadness, you know. And he heard, as he was, he was on the tarmac, ready to take off, just relating this to the Lord, and he heard the Lord say, you know, be glad you have a chalice to offer. And it changed it immediately, like, oh. Well, that sadness isn't a bad thing. It's a good thing. I love my family, and it's something that I can give to the Lord as part of my priestly service, and it can help make my ministry fruitful. Yeah, yeah. And all, all of us have a chalice to offer. Hmm. It's probably not the chalice that we want if we could choose, right? Sure, yeah, good point. But it is, it is something that can be placed on the altar because there's nothing that can't be offered, even our own weakness. Hmm. It can always be offered. One of my favorite spiritual writers uh, Wilfred Stinnison says in his book on the Eucharist, he says, we often think that only holy things can be offered to God. He said, they don't need to be offered as much because they're already in God's light. What we need to offer are our struggles, mm. our weaknesses, our, our desire to overcome those sins that we can't overcome. We need to bring all that and we need to, you know, the relationships that are broken that I wish could be fixed. Um, all the struggles that I have that I wish weren't there, that's what I need to place on the altar and ask God to take it up in his sacrifice and make it part of his light. And then, of course, he gives me back his life when I do that. He yeah. gives me back his life, which then can help strengthen me to carry that cross. God's power is indeed made perfect in weakness. Well, amen. Bishop, yeah, amen to that. Um, just in a couple minutes before we ask for your blessing here, Bishop, but um, we had a call in, an off-air call from Matthew calling in from Ohio. And he asks this, he says, can you explain how the Eucharist, receiving the Eucharist, I assume, is different from just receiving the Holy Spirit? Yes, yeah, so um, we receive the Holy Spirit in all the sacraments, right? So um, the Holy Spirit is what makes possible the sacraments. It's the Holy Spirit's action that, care, that brings us the grace of God in the sacraments. So we receive the Holy Spirit of baptism, it comes to indwell in us, right? Um, it, we receive the Holy Spirit at confirmation, surely, which gives us the strength to testify to our faith. But we also receive the Holy Spirit in, uh, in the Eucharist. And so it's the Holy Spirit that comes down upon the gifts that transforms them into the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus. And you can't receive Jesus without also receiving, in a certain way, the whole Trinity, right? 
And so the Father, Son, and Spirit all come to us through the Eucharist. But I would say this, each of the sacraments gives a very particular grace, right? So it gives an increase in sanctifying grace, every sacrament, but it also gives particular graces that flow from that sacrament, they're called sacramental graces. And so in the Eucharist, that sacramental grace is union with Christ, union with Jesus, and therefore union with God. And so the, the Eucharist increases that union we have and allows us more docile, to be more docile to the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. Of course, we can receive the Holy Spirit outside of the sacraments, but the Holy Spirit definitely comes to us through the sacraments when we're disposed and to the degree that we're disposed. Mm-hmm. Right. And back again to the, the importance of receiving the Eucharist worthily, too. And, uh, and, I, and I assume, I mean, you've, you've done a great job of explaining all that, Bishop, but I, I, I assume that we don't need to necessarily have the understandings of all the you know, intricacies of sacramental theology in order to receive all these graces, right? That, that's right. And what you need to understand is this is about a relationship in that yeah. through receiving the Eucharist worthily, and worthily doesn't mean just without sin, but like with faith. And right. with desire to be to follow Jesus and with the desire to give my life for him, all those dispositions help me receive it worthily. Mm-hmm. And then actually as I receive him, I just receive deeper friendship with Jesus, which helps me to live. Mm-hmm. So in our closing minute here, Bishop, is, is there anything that you would like to say to invite people to be, continue to be part of the National Eucharistic Revival or specifically to the National Eucharistic Congress ne- next summer? Two things, yeah. If you want to learn more about the Eucharistic Revival, go to our website, eucharisticrevival.org, and you'll find all kinds of resources there, including our Jesus in the Eucharist study, which has a beautiful um, study of uh, for small groups that anyone can access that's really well done. And also, yeah, please come to the National Eucharistic Congress or take part in one of the National Eucharistic Pilgrimages, eucharisticcongress.org, eucharisticpilgrimage.org. You can, you can access all three websites from any one of them. These are going to be transformational moments for our country as we really hold up Jesus and invite people to uh, respond to an encounter with Jesus through these events. It's a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, and uh, I am so much looking forward to it. Please, God, and God willing, um, we will all meet up there, and I look forward to meeting many of our of our fellow Catholics of my brothers and sisters in the faith. So hopefully you can make it, make plans for it now. It's coming up July 17th through 21st in Indianapolis. Go to relevantradio.com slash encounter for more. Bishop, it's been a pleasure and a privilege having you on the program today. We always like to ask our spiritual director for a blessing at the end of the show. So if you would, please, Your Excellency. May the blessing of Almighty God, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit descend upon all of you and remain with you forever. Amen. Amen. Well, I hope that you've gained as much out of this show as I have. If you have and would like to share it with others, you can find it over at relevantradio.com slash innerlife where you can share it with others and listen again. Coming up tomorrow on the program, Gratitude and Justice with our spiritual director, Father John Lococo. And up next, of course, is the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass. If you can't make it to Mass today, then give it a listen with our celebrant, Father Matthew Seminar. Thanks for listening this time. We'll see you next time. Until then, grace and peace.